been studying the Old Testament book of Esther here on Reasoning Through the Bible. And one of the themes or one of the phrases that keep coming up is, it just so happens that, or what a coincidence that, because there's so many circumstances here that on the surface seem like a coincidence or a happenstance, but we very clearly see a clear pattern of God's providential hand working through circumstances. Today, we're going to see even more of that. We're going to see God's hand working through chance, where even chance is determined by God. So it will be another great study today in the book of Esther. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen next as God, how is he going to work this situation out? And with that, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3. We're in the middle of the chapter. Just a bit of a refresher. Our Jewish nation has found itself under the king of Persia, Medo-Persia to be exact. The original queen had disobeyed the king and she was deposed. There was a beauty contest and it just so happened that Esther was able to enter and it just so happened that she was beautiful and it just so happened that the king found favor in her and it just so happened that her mentor Mordecai had told her not to let everybody know that she was Jewish and it just so happened that Mordecai was in the gate as an official where he could overhear a plot, and it just so happens that he didn't get rewarded, and it just so happens that when Haman came along, he was promoted to a high official, and it just so happens that Mordecai refused to bow down, and it just so happened that that made Haman so mad that he decided to try to kill all of the Jews. Well, all those things didn't just so happen. It's God's hand of providence working out all these circumstances. Today, we're going to find another, it just so happens that when Haman uses a casting of lots or what they call purr, which was really sort of like our rolling a dice to determine when they're going to kill the Jews. And it just so happens to be a providential date, Steve. What a coincidence. Yeah, we. I get the picture that Haman is doing this day after day, month after month until he gets the right results. But yeah, if you keep on doing something over and over again, then at some point you're likely to get the right answer or the answer that you're seeking. It's like the story of the man that decided he wanted to go get a donut. And he says, okay, if there's a parking space right in front of the donut store, then I'll stop and get a donut. And if there's not, I won't. When he got back, was there a parking space? He says, yes, there was a space right there, right in front of the donut store. I only had to drive around the block seven times before I found the space. So that's a little bit of humor. Some of them say very little bit of humor. But in here, we have something very clearly God moving through it. So, Steve, if you could read Book of Esther, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all your provinces and your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, 
and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. What this passage is saying is that, again, Haman had gotten so angry that he had decided to kill all the Jewish people. And so they're casting lots. They had some system of rolling dice or some random. Sometimes they would have a pot of colored beans and they would pull beans out or some little system of randomness. In the text there, they use the word pur, P-U-R. That's where their term for it was. They're casting lots, a way of chance of determining what would be the best day to kill the Jews. So think of it, Steve. They're using this superstition way of determining when they should do a major event, in this case, to go commit mass murder. So I find it one ironic that people that are educated would use a method like this and find that it, there was some sort of meaning behind it. Steve, how should we how should we take these people? The, the, these were the most educated people of their day, the most powerful people of the day, but yet here they are plotting murder by rolling dice. I think it's just like what we said a while ago. They're seeking a legitimate reason to do it through this casting of lots. That's going to give him a legitimate reason whenever he goes to the king and propose to do what he wants to do, he can fall back on this tradition of casting lots and say, well, the, we cast the lots and the lots said, this is the day that we should do it or this is what action we should take. Doesn't mean that he's going to tell the king he's been working at this for a year in order to come up with this exact day or position. But it is what it is. It's like we said, if you work hard enough and cast enough lots by chance, you're going to get the answer at some point that you're looking for. And what it seems here, if we look at verse 7, it says in the first month, so they sat down at the first month and they started casting these lots. The sense of the passage is, is that when the lots were cast, the magic day to kill the Jews was the last month of the year, 13th day of the last month. That would tell us that, what a coincidence, the Jewish people had a whole year to plan after the command to kill them. The date was almost a year out. So this gives time for Mordecai and Esther and the Jewish people to determine what to do and how to react. What a coincidence, Steve, that even the casting of lots came up very providentially for the Jewish people. And of course, there's no chance at all. What it's telling us here is that even in chance things like this, God's hand is in it. Were the lots falling randomly? No. The lots were falling the way God wanted them to. Look at verse 7 again. It even alludes there to the point made at the end of the book, which is the events that Esther gives in the history of the Jewish holiday called Purim. So the Purim came from this word pur, which really meant casting of lots. That, that's where it came. And of course, the book of Esther gives us the origin of this Jewish holiday of, of Purim. It also tells us here that this date that Haman came up with aligns with what we know about the, the Persian religious beliefs, or at least the casting of lots did. The casting of lots to determine a major political decision aligns with what we know about these ancient people is that they put a lot of faith into superstitious things like casting of lots, things like that. They were so focused on their gods controlling the casting of the lots that they didn't really understand that the real God 
is what's under control of it uh, to to determine his people. They were trying to assume that their God or their forces of fate would help them on the best day to kill the Jews. But what ended up happening is the real God used it to find the best day to protect the Jews. It's kind of ironic, even in the casting of lots. So let's go ahead and read the next few verses. Starting at verse 9, we have this. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. In verse 9, Haman says that he's going to give a great deal of money to the king if he decrees that this Jewish nation be destroyed. Haman is saying that he's going to give it to those who do the king's business. It says in verse 9, I find this interesting. It hints that this giving of this money was somewhat secretive. He didn't just say, okay, here, king, I'm going to put it into the treasury. He says, no, I'm going to give this to the people that do the king's business which means it's sort of a money laundering is the way we would call it today. If you're a politician and you don't just take the bribe directly, you have the bribe go through your businesses so it all looks legit. With this, that's the sense here, is that there's this some underhanded payment deal going on here in order to kill the Jews. He's bribing the king to get what he wants. What do we know in our day, Steve, about bribery? What should Christians know and do about bribery? For sure, we shouldn't participate in it. Bribery brings about a corrupt government. All it does is it brings people that want to be in government for the purpose of enriching themselves. That's what happens with bribery. People want to get in positions of power so that they themselves can become rich. They're not concerned with justice or they're not concerned with the, what the people need or what the people have to have in order to survive and bring them justice. They just want to enrich themselves. So once you start down the road of bribery for your government officials, your country starts to go downhill. Bribery really is a way of helping your country go downhill. Christians shouldn't do it because we're commanded not to. And the example we have is the Apostle Paul was in prison in Acts chapter 24. And the leader, the king, kept bringing Paul in, thinking that Paul was going to give him a bribe to let him go. Paul could have justified to himself and said, you know, I'm more useful to God out doing ministry work than I am here in prison. 
and bribed his way out. But Paul knew better than that, would not bribe on his way out, and God had a better use for him in prison because he wrote all the prison epistles and he was able to get an audience in Rome paid for by the Roman government. We should, as Christians, never, never follow a, a system of bribery. But on a more practical level, just from a nation, it sucks money out of the economy. It, it bypasses the tax system and ultimately hurts the, the government and the nation. And it is one of the major ways of ensuring, ensuring that there's poverty in your country is if you allow widespread bribery. Everywhere where there's widespread bribery, you have widespread poverty. Two things also happen. One is that official is then compromised because now he has some information from the person that bribed him that he can always go to the authorities and say, hey, you have a official here who took money and has been bribed. Second part of it is, is that you can be assured that this person at some point is going to come back and want to bribe them again. Then at that point, if they say, no, I'm not taking any more bribes, that's whenever the blackmail comes in and says, if you don't take this bribe, I'm going to report you. So it compromises the official and the person that's taking it. And it just leads into a situation that they can go deeper and deeper. And it it's, leads to corruption all around. So Haman comes in and says, King, there's these people. They won't follow your laws, which was a lie. There was no indication here that the Jews weren't good citizens following the laws. So he goes and he lies to the king and says, there's these people out here and we need to kill them. And oh, yeah, by the way, I'll pay you a large sum of money. I'll bribe it to you if you'll just but make this edict. So the king agrees. And in verse 10, the king takes off his signet ring and hands it to Haman. For those that don't know, what is a signet ring and what's its significance? Signet ring was what royalty used whenever the king had all the power, and it was a seal. Whenever letters or laws were made, there would be a wax that would be dropped, and then the signet ring would be pressed into that wax. It was an official signature or authorization that the king says that, yes, he has authorized this law. We see this with Anasueros. He earlier just took the recommendation from the wise man that he got. Here, he, we can see why he's doing this is because he's going to get enrichment out of it. But what it shows is he doesn't have any concern for the Jewish people who are subjects of his even if they are Jewish. Second is, is that he's just given this signet ring to Haman. Haman could, <laughs> Haman could come up with other laws too that could enrich himself. And he's got the king's signet ring and he could impress and create laws all he wanted to with that signet ring. So we see this king, Xerxes or Anasuerus, he just doesn't seem to have good scruples and ethics when it comes to ruling over his people. He doesn't come across as a very strong king. In fact, he comes across rather weak. This is another sign. Somebody comes to him and says, there's these people, we need to kill them all. And the king, oh yeah, okay, go ahead. And gives his signet rings. There was only one of them. They were handmade. If that impression was in the wax, the only place that could have come from is the king. It's the, the symbol of authority. It's a, a way of passing all kinds of laws. And he just gives that away with no more thought than, oh, yeah, it sounds good to me. Nowhere in this whole story do we see this king being powerful enough to say, 
well, I'm going to investigate this or let me think about it. None of these kind of things. He's always swayed by the people around him. He's a very weak king, even though he's the, the king over the most powerful nation in the world at the time. He appears to be very careless. So they make this proclamation to kill Jews. And it goes out to all the provinces in the kingdom. Verse 15, the king and Haman were calm and peaceful when the city was thrown into confusion. Think about it, Steve. They had passed this law. Oh, yeah, go kill all these people. The king didn't even ask how many of them there were. Didn't ask where they were. No details. Yeah, just just kill them all. Oh, let's have lunch. They were there calmly having lunch, drinking wine when the city was in confusion. What does that tell us about them as leaders? The city is in confusion and they're in calm and peace, just having a nice meal. I believe that the confusion that they're having is, is that why, why all of a sudden these Jewish people were interacting while we look at it as a missed opportunity for them to go back to Israel and to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it in their country and where they should be. The people there at Susa, they're, they're interacting, they're merchants, they're people, they're friends that are there in the kingdom. And here it is that here this decree comes down. Oh, yeah, on this certain day, you're to execute them or they're going to be executed. So I look at this as being the people are confused. It's like, why? Where does this come from? What have they done in order to deserve this? It just doesn't make sense to them. I believe that's where the confusion is coming from. There's confusion there because, one, it's going to kill all these people. The Jewish people generally very industrious. They would have had possessions. So we have here a situation where the city is thrown into confusion and the king and his followers are just completely unaware, having a nice meal. They're disconnected from their subjects. A leader should always have his finger on the pulse of his subjects. And good leaders do. If we look at the good leaders throughout history, they were always very aware of how their subjects were going to react and the attitude of the people. Those are the good leaders. Same thing should apply in the leaders of our churches and the leaders of our nation. Good leaders should have a finger on the pulse of the average person to know what they want and what their needs are. Because here, this king doesn't have a clue as to what their needs are. Now, at this point in the story, we have a real interesting set of circumstances that have arisen here. By the end of chapter three, which is where we are, we have this seemingly impossible situation. Because as, as we've seen, the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. And the king has given this with his own signet ring. You can kill all the Jews on the come this one day, 13th day of the last month, kill all the Jews and take all their possessions. And that's gone out and you cannot change the law of the Medes and Persians. It is set. Even the king can't change this law. So we have the power of the throne of the most powerful nation in earth that has passed a law that can't be changed, that all the Jews are going to be killed. We have all of the military people and the populace given total freedom to do this. We have this very high official, Haman, that hates the Jews, and he is determined to get rid of them. We have a king that is totally oblivious to any care about the Jewish people. Oh, yeah, sure, just kill them all. Impossible situation. No way they can get out of it. No way out of this, Steve. The Jews are just done for. Might as well close the book. 
No, no. Can God deal with impossible situations? Is there a impossible situation when it comes to God? One thing the Jewish people have is tradition. And it's been shown that they give oral tradition and oral stories. and They pass it down from generation to generation. This isn't the first time that we see a king that has been tricked into giving a decree. There's another time that we're told back in Daniel. And that king was tricked into giving this decree that if all the people didn't bow down to this statue to him, Nebuchadnezzar, that they were to be killed. And then we see Daniel's friend, Abshak, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, no, we're not going to bow down. And the king is thrown into a quandary because that's the law. The law can't be changed. And he knows that he is trapped and caught in his own law. So really against his will, he throws them into the fiery furnace for destruction. And we actually get out of that story that the king is upset. He has a sleepless night. But yet out of that, their three of them are saved in that situation. So I'm sure that this story had been passed down because it, it hadn't happened. It was in recent history when this happened. It happened when, when Babylon was in control and Persia had taken over from Babylon. Well, hang on. It gets worse. We're, we're in an even, even worse situation now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were following God. They were standing on principles. So far in the story here in Esther, no one has shown any indication of following God. No one has prayed. No one has turned to God. They've all been sinful. Esther has, has kept her faith quiet. Everyone in the story is sinful. There's no one turning to God. So is it impossible? Is it done for? Is there any chance at all for the Jews? Yeah, there's absolutely a chance for the Jews because it, they are God's people. And while those three people of Daniel's friends, they were following God and they had stood up saying, even if our God doesn't save us, we're not going to bend the knee and worship the statue. And while we see here that they're not saying that they're following God, we have also seen in other places that God has protected his people, even when they have not been necessarily following him. So we have both stories. We have the stories of where God protects them whenever they are following him and where God has protected them whenever they have not followed them. Through both of those situations, we can know for sure that God is going to protect and preserve his people. Yes. The, there is no way out physically from this, from a man perspective. There's a way out, though, from a God perspective. There is a way out from a God perspective simply because even though every circumstance is against the Jewish people here, we have a God that is above circumstances. We have a God who's overcome impossibilities. All the way back to Abraham, God said, I will do these things. I will make a great nation of you, and I will put you into the land forever. And there's no conditions on the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I will do these things. He walked through the animals, put Abraham to sleep. No obedience requirement on Abraham. Another one like that was King David. He had promised David, one of your descendants will be on the throne forever. There's two instances where God unilaterally, unconditionally promised the Jewish nation, I will do these things. So although the situations 
come up seemingly impossible here. We have a God that can overcome impossible circumstances. That is the God that we have here today. I think that that is something for people in our time, the people that want to say that God is through with the nation of Israel and that God has moved on. They need to be careful about that because it's God's plan. And there's plenty of stories in the Bible where God takes care of them. They need to make sure that they're not going against God whenever they do that. I would also say in here, although all these circumstances are lining up, as we've seen earlier, God had the solution in place before the problem showed up. He has his person in the person of Esther already in a key spot, already waiting for the divine time clock to reach the right point where she could save her people. We'll see that as we come up in our future studies here in Esther, as we continue to reason through the Bible. Thank you for watching and listening. May God bless you.